Oh, wait, you've got Morris throat, I see. Um, podcasting? Should we, should we do some? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very 49th episode of Octothorpe, the podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is coming to you on the 20th of January 2022. Happy birthday, Bella. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we have an announcement for the start of the episode, which is every time that we say 2020 instead of saying 2021, and every time we say 2021 instead of saying 2022, you should take a drink. So please go and get your drink. We will wait. You back? Good. Get ready. And we have some letters of comment. Are you drinking comfortably? Then we'll begin. I mean, in fact, I think we have something better than a letter of comment, don't we? We do have something better than a letter of comment. I'll put a photo in the chapter rod. We got liquid of comment from our podcasting friends at This Never Happens, um, the Cornish end of that. They sent us a beer from Polly's Brewery, which is somewhere in North Wales, called This Never Happened, which is a 13.1% quadruple IPA. I feel like there's only one can, but that's plenty for three of us. And hopefully we're going to drink it at Easter um, if Liz gets over for EasterCon. And if Liz doesn't get over for EasterCon, um, John and I will drink it and then phone Liz drunkenly. And tell her how nice it was. Um, at length, drunkenly. I did email Blue Bee Brewery because I found on Untapped that they do a beer called Octothorpe. But apparently it was a one-off beer and it was brewed over five years ago. Uh, so thanks to Josh at Blue Bee Brewery for telling me that. I'm very sad. If there are any brewers listening, please brew a beer called Octothorpe. It would be great. And let us know. I think we're looking at you, Dave Mansfield. Or Dave Coxon. Don't just let us know. Don't just let us know. Send us some. Oh, Dave Coxon brews beer. So, so yeah, how many Octothorpe listeners brew beer? That would be good. And why have none of you sent us any? Please brew beer called Octothorpe and send us some. That would be nice. So it turns out that the demands we make on the podcast uh, scale in magnitude linearly to the length of time we podcast. Uh, so, you know, by episode 200, we'll be asking for the moon. Uh, but it started here with this request for beer. A pony made of diamonds. We did actually get a letter of comment from Dave Coxon, who I just uh, mentioned, that our comment about Jing Zhang got him to thinking, is there a reason we don't have guest panellists on the podcast? And I think he was coming at it from the perspective that we said we didn't know much about that. And he said, well, you could always, um, you know, get someone who does. So this is something that we're going to talk about in an upcoming post on Cora Bulet's blog. She has, she has asked us some questions about the Octothought philosophy, um, which she asked to a lot of people doing fanish content. And so we will pop a link in the show notes as and when those come out um, but basically we yeah we try not to uh, have guests because it's not really what we're trying to do i'm strongly strongly considering it though because if we had a guest on we'd have to start on time <laughs> <laughs> well that's us told <laughs> um, savage right jonathan badly writes in to say that tedious npc would make a great badge ribbon um this is I think inspired by the discussion we had uh, last time 
where I said I was going to have my tedious NPC hat on, which is the Mark Protection Committee. Uh, an NPC is a non-player character, but tedious NPC is a great badge ribbon. So thank you, Jonathan, for writing in. We also had a comment from Ali Baker, um, who basically talked to us about the two panels that she was on at Discon 3 and um, said it was really good that they got a lot of audience questions on both panels um, because a big downside of being on a panel online is the lack of the feedback you would get from a live audience. And uh, she says the campaign for normalizing emojis in Zoom chats starts here. Um, you can you can kind of do reacts in Zoom. You can like you can make like clapping happen on your um, on your little video box, and when you're doing a um, a panel, they can like float up from the bottom, and it's all very good. Um, but I do think more people need to know about this and use them. So yes, use emojis in your Zoom chat. Ali was moderating that panel, but I was kind of the Zoom room host for it, and I thought it was a smashing panel. Really enjoyed it. It was. Very late at night for the UK, like 11 o'clock or midnight or something. So that would be a great one to listen to again when the Discon panels come out, which they will do super soon. Kat Tanaka Akopnik says that Nice is not bidding for 2026, which gives us a little bit more time to squeeze in that viewing of Brees Denise. So, uh, you know, sad news that it's not going to be 2026, but I will still be cosplaying people. Um, and several of our listeners wrote to talk about movies that they recommend if you want to have a big cry. And Fran Dowd talks about going to see Platoon with a bunch of veterans. And she says that she wasn't so much crying herself, but um, she was out in the lobby after 10 minutes running an impromptu therapy session with them. She had to go back again to watch the movie later. And Ange Rosset said she went to see Dead Poets Society on a date and was sobbing so much she couldn't walk. And Farah talks about fried green tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. Um, I have never seen that, but I'm told it's a bit of a weepy. Thank you, everyone, for writing in. Those were brilliant. After last time's episode, I've been listening to podcasts, and I'm going to talk about that a bit more later in the episode. Um, but I particularly appreciated sponsor read on Podside Picnic, and we're putting a link into the show notes. This is a Raytheon joke and we had a bit of a chat last time about whether we could do a sponsor read for Octothought very much along these lines I think um, they've done a better job for of it so you know props to you Podside Picnic. Chris Garcia wrote in and said he was going to be a relaxer fic and he still might for 2024 and it might be at an actual hotel uh, and it will be programming light. I would come Chris and also Chris says on the time shifting of cons a 24-hour Zoom hangout area would be great and it would make cons a little nicer. Yeah, so so that, that leads back to the thing that I've been bleating on about for nearly two years at this point, which is that conventions need to let people know well in advance that the Zoom con suites exist and put things in them because it's not like people can go, oh, well, I can just wander up to the con suite and see if people are there and grab some snacks and food and stuff they and, and drinks they need to they need to have some reason to go in but yeah there was a hangout my response to chris is chris that is not a valid anagram okay what was the anagram he's tried to anagram crimbo no from omicron and it's like no there's no b in it chris but it's actually pronounced omicron no so 
So back in October, I don't think we mentioned it on the podcast, but Jason Sanford uh, put on his uh, Patreon a post about basically the the difficulties, the financial difficulties specifically for international authors. And this came up again this week because of the news that Best African Speculative Fiction, Year's Best African SF, which is being edited by uh, Oganachomi Donald Ekpeki, basically had their Kindle Direct publishing account kind of deleted without recourse for breaking some rule that they didn't know they'd broken or may indeed not have broken. Basically, one of these sort of automated algorithmic shutdowns of your account at the point where they sold a bunch of copies and were relying on the money in the account to, you know, pay royalties to the authors in it. And we'll link to the thread, but basically it's just another example of the difficulties of being an author. It's specifically in some countries, and in this case, it seems likely that by being in Nigeria, this has triggered some algorithmic scrutiny because of Nigeria, you know, looking more suspect than other countries in some ways. But it also kind of goes hand in hand with the issues of, you know, if you can't access PayPal, then you can't use venues like Smashwords and, you know, essentially just the extra difficulties and hoops you have to jump through to be able to publish from outside the US or and maybe even the UK are just much bigger than I think a lot of us really think about. There, there are a whole pile of things that might be a bit dull here, but there's a lot of stuff about tax treaties and the fact that countries like the UK have very comfortable tax treaties with the US that mean that although you have a bit of paperwork to do, you won't actually have tax removed twice from your earnings. That doesn't mean to say that people in the US or the UK are immune to Amazon shutting down accounts randomly, but it does appear that this batch has mostly been in 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 countries that are not traditional homes of the English language science fiction publishing market. Quite a lot of people have been caught by this, but I think um, Opec is the biggest example there. Then Amazon did come back and say, we will reinstate your account as a one-time deal. But he was quite reasonably not persuaded by the language and tone that they used because they were just like, but we might take it away again at any time. And this doesn't mean that we think we were doing the right thing or anything like that. It just means that a lot of friends have made a lot of noise on your behalf. It's not great. No, and it it clearly requires you, you know, you clearly have an advantage there if you have friends who can make noise on your behalf. So this is probably happening to a lot of people who do not have, you know, even recourse mail to discuss this on Twitter and, and maybe get some solution to it. And I, I mean, I think what Sanford also goes into in his post is that like there are sometimes alternatives to this if you can't be paid through like PayPal or Venmo, but a lot of the time they charge huge transaction fees. So, you know, you're losing a massive chunk of your earnings just by trying to get them remitted to you in a currency you can use. It's not uncommon for the major platforms to treat the use of those sorts of services as a red flag for their algorithms as well. So it doesn't necessarily help. These books include one of the books that we previously had as a pick on Octothorpe, because I think it's really important that it's possible for people to get hold of these books. Yeah. Shall we go on to talking about hot goss? So we had a few bits of follow up about Worldcon. We're not quite done with Worldcon yet, um, for one reason or another. So False Seven Seventy had a long thread about Winnipeg's possible NASFIC bid. I think we have two definite NASFIC bids, which are Winnipeg and Orlando. And and that thread has a lot of people saying, but here's actually what went on in site selection at Discon. So two things on that. First, if you're interested, which I probably think you aren't at this point because we're just all moving on, aren't we? Then it's there. And also, 
one of the things about all the people going, here's what's, what really went on, is that these accounts do not correlate. It's like Rashomon for site selection. I'm also reading, I'm sure there was something I meant to mention from like Cheryl's Worldcom report, and I will fish out in a minute. Oh, yes. Cheryl Morgan's done also done an enormously long Worldcom report, which is all about this. Yeah, I think I think I found that thread very interesting, in particular because after the site selection business meeting fiasco, there then seemed to be quite a lot of comments in, you know, Facebook file 770, Twitter, various places saying, you know, oh, well, you didn't know like the whole story. And what is evident is that we probably didn't know the whole story. Possibly no one agrees on the whole story, but it all seems to require that you just have faith and trust that someone behind the scenes knows what's going on and, and we should just kind of almost leave them to it. It's very weird. Yeah, a lot of people are like, you didn't know the whole story and everyone thinks that it was this. And it's like, well, the reason people thought it was that is because it looked like that. And if you didn't want it to look like that, there is an element here of making sure you were communicating with people outside the convention who were watching to make it clear what was happening. But waiting three weeks and then saying, oh, it was actually this. That's not helpful. Say it's actually this, like at the point it's happening. There is a version of events here in which it was all very you know, all very above board and all very done with good intentions. And, it, you know, you might believe that that is true. But certainly, it's a lot harder to believe that that's true, given that it's all being put together from post hoc rationalizations and, oh, actually, people have got the wrong end of the stick, instead of people standing up and being like, actually, we want to have a measured conversation about this, and we're not trying to fix the vote. But certainly from the outside, it looked an awful lot like you were trying to fix the vote. And if you didn't want it to, you should have done it differently. It's not our fault that it looked like that. It's yours, I think, is my basic perspective. But here's one of my two takeaways on virtual and hybrid conventions for convention committees, which is especially on on hybrid conventions. If you're running a hybrid convention, you need to think very hard all the time about how you're going to involve the people at the physical convention with the people at the online convention so that you don't end up with two totally separate conventions. Because if there had been a lot more people chatting who were physically at the convention with people who were not physically at the convention, this wouldn't have happened. And if you had designed ways of making that happen as part of your convention, you would have fostered that single convention feeling. That's why it's so important. And that's why people should do it. Yes. It's very hard though. Yeah. It is. Oh yeah. It's, it's very difficult. I, I, I don't, I accept it might be hard, but I don't, ex- but at the moment nobody's properly tried it. So, you know. No. Yeah. Fair enough. Spinning out from the subject of site selection, Steve Cooper has set up a mailing list to look at trying to address the problem of electronic site selection. And we will have a link in the show notes if you'd like to go and get involved with that. I was quite in favour of using groups.io. And the reason that I was is that although you think mailing list, all the stuff is archived online. So it's a very good way of actually having a discussion that people can can then follow back and trace through in a way that a traditional mailing list often isn't. But it is still a mailing list. That that group is full of smoffs. I mean, I guess that Steve Cooper has a lot of smoppy friends. But Who knew? <laughs> who, who knew that a group devoted to, like, discussing the, the finer points of the Whispers Constitution was going to attract smoffs? And Chicon 8 have said about Hugo nominations that they will open later in January 
uh, and will run through to mid-March 2022. All members of Discon 3 and anyone who joins Tricon 8 before the 31st of January 2022 will be eligible to nominate in this year's Hugo Awards and obviously all members of Tricon 8 will be eligible to vote. Um, so if you want to nominate and you're not a member of Discon, um, join Tricon 8 before the end of this month. You've got about a week and a half at the point that this episode drops. That's a slightly later deadline than usual. This is why it's relevant. Normally, the cutoff for um, nomination rights is before nominations open. But there's likely to be a slight overlap. I don't think it matters. They've 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 pushed it back because Discon was so much later than they've pushed it back. They pushed the deadline back because we made a constitutional change to push the deadline back, right? As in the date when you have to join Chicon. Sorry, have I got the wrong end of the stick? Did we make a constitutional change or am I just talking through my hat? I think we made a constitutional change. But to check this, I will have to go and look at the... It be the first time I talk bollocks on the podcast. Just, you know, that's why I'm just going to do a little, a little check. I, I think I was, like, not really paying attention at that point of the business meeting, or really not full attention, but I thought there was a constitutional amendment to amend this. Yeah, no, no, it's here. Section 3.7.1, they've crossed out member as of the end of the previous calendar year, and it's now as of January 31st of the current calendar year. Sorry, that was garbled, but I, I think I was correct, and I value factory accuracy above getting to my dinner 30 seconds faster. So, Which section did you say it was, Liz? 3.7.1. 3.7.1. Anyway, it's also kind of irrelevant. The point is that you can still join and nominate in the Hugos. Okay, so I sincerely apologise for talking bollocks on the podcast and I will endeavour never to do it again. <laughs> God, clip that out, John. Paying members can get that sound clip uh, in the secret archive. The Wuspus Constitution and deadlines for Hugo nominations bring us neatly on to the topic of the Hugo Awards. And friend of the show, Nicholas White, wrote quite a long uh, response in uh, in answer to the questions we asked him last episode. So um, it's quite a long article. Um, it's quite interesting. And we're going to put you at it. Thank you very much, Nicholas. We very much appreciate it. Yes, thank you for like writing such a long and detailed response to our kind of casual invocation of your name on the podcast. The question that Nicholas White answered for us is, he answers a question about E Pluribus Hugo for us and whether or not it's vulnerable particularly to bullet nominations, which we discussed last time. And he also discusses the logic between what puts a finalist on the long form or short form dramatic presentation ballots. So if you're interested in either of those two things, we highly recommend going to read his write-up. Very deep in that is nicholas's confession that he's the person who wrote the explanation of eph on the finnish website that we linked to last time so thanks for doing that nicholas because that was the thing that allowed me to understand eph so this year's fanzine winner nerds of a feather has recused itself from the 2022 hugos um far writes quite an interesting piece about the history of doing this um Far 770, of course, has permanently removed itself in consideration for Hugo's. And I like the tradition. It's been going on a little while, but what Nerds of a Feather have done and what a few other recent winners have done is recuse themselves for just one year. So they don't say, never give us a Hugo again, chaps. They go, 
well, we've got Hugo now next year. Why don't you look at all the other great stuff that's going on in this space? And what that does is is break the tendency for people to nominate and vote for whatever won last year. And I think had this been a tradition back in 2005 and 2006 when Plockter won its Hugos, we might have recused ourselves for one year because we did win the Hugo the following year, much to our surprise. And I think it was just the kind of positive, you know, the positive feedback we got that after we won the Hugo the first time, people went to go and look at the fanzine. And I think taking yourself out for a year and saying, now look at all the other stuff, especially in fanish categories where the fact that there's a lot of stuff in the in the category is very much the point. We have a lot of good things and we want people to know what they are. So um, that was my thought on that. I like it. I'm glad that they've done it. I'm glad that other fan winners do that and I encourage it. I basically have not such strong feelings on this one. Like I can see both sides of the coin. One is that it's nice to accuse yourself because of that, you know, possible bounce just from being on the ballot year after year in some cases. But also if you accuse yourself, then if people really do think you were the best, you know, fanzine, whatever in, in that year and they can't vote for you, it means they have to vote for something they think is not actually the best thing. So I can sort of see both sides. So I think maybe, yeah, recruiting yourself for a year, but not forever is a nice way to do it. My perspective on this is that I very much like it when works recuse themselves and I have been advocating. I I, I think I prefer the model where if you win a certain number of times, you permanently recuse yourself. So something I've, I think I've said on the podcast before, but I do wish, for instance, that Uncanny would recuse themselves because although I think they're still doing fantastic work, I do think it would be better for the genre if other semi-prozines got recognition. I was very glad that Fire Magazine won this year for that reason. And, you know, you look back in the history of the genre and there are certain other works that won repeatedly and possibly could have, you know, taken three rockets. We're looking at you, Langford. I was actually thinking of Locus, uh, but yes. Um, but no, I think I think having a tradition where you feel able to recuse yourself is very good. I think this is one of the big problems with certain other awards is that when you suggest that people could recuse themselves if they don't want to win Infinite Awards, they look at you funny and say, ah, but that wouldn't be done, um, which I, I kind of hugely disagree with. And I think, but there is a point that is made and, and which Liz just made, which is, you know, do you want the award to be the best fanzine except for all the things that have recused themselves or do you want it to be the um, objectively best fanzine? And my response to that criticism would be if you want it to be objectively the best fanzine, well, firstly, that's impossible. But secondly, you're a lot you're you're a lot more likely to get that if you have a juried award than a popular one, I would argue. Uh, and so I think the Hugos have never really been about awarding the objectively best thing. Uh, and so it, it always kind of seemed like an odd argument to me. But also, I think this was a much better argument in a year when an enthusiastic fanzine reader could thoroughly survey the field and have a pretty good idea of what was out there and what were, uh, and and what pe- things people thought were good. But now we've got multiple different communities doing multiple different sorts of things. And I think the more we can do to bring more different good things to everybody's attention, the better. On that topic, we're going to be trying to promote things that we think are good in the SFNL community through the next year. I'm really liking Hugo Girl which is a terrible pun, but also quite a good podcast. And they were directly below us in the... It's a great pun. It's a great pun. Um, They were directly below us in the long list. And this is a podcast where three feminists talk about 
Hugo winning things and Hugo nominated things from a feminist perspective. And the one that I've listened to and really enjoyed this week is their one on the first of the Expanse novels, which of course I haven't read, but because I've seen the whole of the first series now, I felt, well, it can't spoil me too much. And indeed it did not. It was fine because they're coming at it from a feminist point of view. They point out all of the things that you might expect them to point out in a novel from a little while ago that was written by a couple of bros and was intending to be men's adventure fic. And I'm sorry for stealing all your jokes, guys, but they make a joke about how this is categorized by Amazon as men's adventure fiction. And so they went, well, what on earth would women's adventure fiction be? And they looked it up and they discovered that it was all the same books in the top 10 places. Um, It turns out that if you like adventure fiction, then your gender is not particularly germane to the sort of thing you like. Um, Yeah, so it's very funny, really enjoyed it. um, And I would recommend that you check it out if you like that sort of thing. There is a problem with, for me, with podcasts that talk about works that I don't much like to be spoiled for them. So I only like the ones that I've already read. And as we know, Bob, I don't read enough science fiction. So... Yeah, I mean, Al Anderson is not, not entirely stolen my thunder, but I have also been listening to some episodes of Hugo Girl, which I I cannot say it in the right way to, like, do the sassy joke. Hugo Girl? Yeah, no. Um, and yeah, I like it. Liz is not sufficiently sassy, and that is the title of the episode. Boom! I'm not sufficiently sassy. You haven't seen her when she's hungry, have you? <laughs> that is hangry and not sassy, Alison. Yeah, I haven't actually caught the one about Leviathan Wakes, but yes, I can in, I can see that they probably have many of the same criticisms I have of Leviathan Wakes, which the Expanse TV adaptation in some ways mitigates by pulling in some stuff from like later books in order that there are more ladies in the cast. Yeah, I, I listened to their episode recently on uh, Dragonflight by Anne McCaffrey, which is, you know, one of those books where... When I read it when I was like 13, it was great. And if you read it when you are not 13, it is maybe less great. But they they do a really interesting job, I think, of trying to say, look, this is not like typical of the time, but let's look at the context of when it won and let us look at the context of, you know, some of society at the time. And I think, you know, they're not excusing it, but they are saying, let us put it into like context. And maybe these are things that were considerations that I hadn't thought about. So I thought that was a very interesting listen. I would like to ask you, John, is their logo a misappropriation of the Hugo uh, trademark or whatever it is? Hugo service mark? Uh, no, I don't think so. No, it's a parody work and it's clearly fine in context. Yeah, I know. I'm, make, I'm making another mark protection joke because I like them. This is not as funny as you hoped it would be. No, it's not. Because I am very tedious. <laughs> With my tedious NPC hat on. Yeah, I was hoping we'd get some comedy gold out of that, and we, we did not. Tedious NPC corner. <laughs> I think we need to move on. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I do, I like also that it is, it's not just kind of, you know, going back through the best novel over time. It is, you know, jumping about in time and uh, picking up, Looking up, you know, lesser-known works I haven't read, like some of the uh, retro Hugo nominees, things like that, um, which I find more interesting than just if we were going to do, like, you know, the past 20 years of best novel winner. But anyway, they're great. Would get a vote from me, a nomination from me. If I, uh, I don't know. I might find more than six things by the time we get around to nominating. Who knows? Well, you're only going to nominate five, so. 
Fan Achievement Awards have opened for voting. Uh, these are the Achievement Awards given by fanzine fans to fanzine fans. Um, and there is a list, uh, an incomplete register 2021, which has been um, published by Nick Ferry, who is the administrator of the Fan Awards. And that tells you um, what the categories you can vote in are and gives you some examples of fanzines that you could vote for. And normally I would say... Um... By fanzine fans, they mean traditional fanzine fans. But clearly in this case, they know what they mean because they've said what a fanzine is. And so therefore you can deduce what a fanzine fan is. Yes, a fanzine for our purposes is defined as an immutable artifact once published, not subject to revision or modification. The fanzine might not exist in a physical form. A PDF, for example, is an artifact. And what that means, I think is that Octothorpe is a fanzine. Yes. We're an artefact, right? We are an artefact, certainly. We do not exist in a physical form. I mean, we exist in a physical form, but the podcast doesn't. So if a PDF is an artefact, then... I'm actually made of pure energy, especially if I've had enough coffee. That's, that explains so much. I mean, if a PDF is an artefact, then like an MP3 is presumably also an artefact. Yeah, clearly, an MP3, if a PDF is an artifact, then an MP3 is an artifact, and we are a fanzine for the purposes of the fan awards. And what's really interesting is the sort of fanzine we are, because they also go on to design, define genzine and perzine. And, and for the benefit of listeners who might not be voting in the fan awards, um, please don't vote in the fan awards unless you are part of the community that votes in the fan awards. A genzine is traditionally a kind of bigger zine maybe with a few editors i mean something like journey planet is clearly a gen zine lots of different editors lots of different stuff it's a gen zine a per zine is traditionally something where somebody talks about their harrowing divorce in some detail that that's your per, per zine right and obviously there's a gap between those so they've also decided to define the difference between per zine and gen zine and they've described per zine as a fanzine which typically has few, if any, contributors other than its editors. So, uh, was it Dave Coxon who asked why we didn't have interviews? Because <laughs> the answer is, if we had interviews, we would be a Gen Z. But as we don't, we're a Perzine because there's three of us and we do it all ourselves. Actually, John does it all. So when you're voting for the Fan Awards, remember that we, Octothorpe, is a Perzine. So um, just to clarify for those who are confused as to where these words come from, a genzine is a general interest fanzine and a perzine is a personalised fanzine, according to Fancyclopedia, and that kind of is why you have these two different feels of zine and where the words originally came from. But those are not the same definitions as the one that, that Nick has used in the Incomplete Register for the Fan Awards, so, but anyway. So Bill Burns said in the comments of the file 770 discussion of this um that by these definitions they reverse the present perversion of the fan hugos so that's good and i think it is it's very forward looking to make sure that kind of um it doesn't matter what the kind of you know whether you're writing something down or saying it out loud it still counts as a fanzine i think that is kind of a really good idea yeah well done well one forward thinking fan award administrator nick Fari. I don't know whether it was Nick that came up with it. I assume it... I don't know whether... Is this the first time this is the definition? Do we know? 
Nick, if you're listening, please write in. Yes, uh, or anyone else who is in, involved with the panel I don't awards. know the answer to that, and I don't want to look it up now because Liz will never get dinner. And then on the subject of defining awards, Alison has joined a Discord, and usually this would not be news for the podcast, but in this case it is. I have joined the Hugo Awards Study Committee Discord. Um, the business meeting remitted... Um, the Hugo Awards Study Committee to go away and look at best audiobook and also a couple of other things and in general consider whether any changes were needed to Hugo category definitions and report back next year with some proposals. Um, so the chair's appointed by the business meeting and then the chair gets to appoint other people. The chair wants to have a good and open discussion but doesn't want to open it up to the entire set of people on the internet who might be interested in um hugo's i mean he do, i think he basically doesn't want a hundred um cheer uh, he doesn't want a cheering squad for best audiobook to turn up or something like that he wants he wants to get people who will will consider carefully and dispassionately what sorts of things are needed and why however um, he's given us an email that you can get in touch if you're interested. So thank you, Cliff. That was very helpful. It's Cliff Dubb is the chair. Um, it, so far, it's been very, um, I think, pretty civilised. People have come up with some things in a number of categories. As we know, Bob, I am very interested in making sure that a good proposal for best game goes to the business meeting along with a big following wind of people who think that it's a good idea amongst the people who will be at the business meeting in Chicago. Um so that's one of the reasons I'm there. But I'm also going to watch, and if there's anything very interesting coming out of it, I will report back. Are, are you allowed to report back? Don't say I can't. What are those funny rules? Chatham House rules? How Chatham House rules is it? I haven't said it's Chatham House rules. Well, I'm not going to say, um, you know, XYZ said exactly this. Chatham House rules, incidentally, allow you to report things, just not with not attributed things. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I'm, I'm not intending to cut and paste stuff out of the Discord. Yeah, I mean, my thought is just like, it, it feels like the Hugo Awards Study Committee has lost a bunch of momentum. I mean, fair enough, pandemic and all that. Um, but it kind of did some big reporting probably in 2019 and then really hasn't kind of done much since then. So it would be good to get some stuff, some good proposals out of this year. I need to rewind. It is not a standing committee. I'm, I'm surprised John didn't pitch in here. The Hugo Awards Study Committee is not a standing committee of Wusfus, which only has one standing committee, which is the Mark Protection Committee. Depends how you count. It is in, instead an ad hoc committee, and it comes and goes, and it has gone away for a bit, and now it is back. Did it go away, or did they just keep renewing it and it didn't do anything? No, it reported, and then it went away. So, so this business meeting appointed a new chair, who I think was the same as the old chair. To get an answer, we'd have to look through lots of minutes of business meetings to find out when various committees were done. And we've been recording for 55 minutes, so we're not going to do that. So, I don't really believe in New Year's resolutions, but I have a lot of them. I don't believe in them. John has been going on about the way in which I never read science fiction, and I thought, you know, you're not wrong. We have picks to do every fortnight on Octavort, but I thought it would be quite good if at least half of those picks were science fiction books or fantasy books. Um, that's like, that commits me to 13 books in 2022, so that's not impossible. Um, and 
I also have a load of things around, you know, eating better and doing more exercise and getting more sleep and all the normal sorts of and drinking less beer and all the normal sorts of New Year's resolution things. And I have resolved to play somewhat fewer mindless video games. Don't know whether it will work. So that's where I'm going to get a load of new time from. It's going to be good. I had some New Year's resolutions in 2021, which were to publish 12 issues of Lulzine, which I did, and to get an app in the App Store, which I didn't, but I did get it into beta testing, so I kind of feel like... That's why I'm drinking less alcohol, John. Yay. Uh, so my resolutions are broadly similar. Um, the Lulzine one's gotten off to a little bit of a bad start because we haven't yet commissioned uh, an article for the first issue of 2022. If you want to write something about funny things, please write in, listeners, because um, that would be useful. But yeah, so kind of keep plugging on with the Fanac and and keep keep plugging on with my app. So that'll be good, hopefully. I've also got my um, standard board game challenge, which I don't really think of as a New Year's resolution, um, but which I guess is. And this year I'm going to play 10 games 10 times. Last year I just played games 100 times and was not limited to like you know from these games uh, but this time i'm doing what's called a 10 by 10 challenge in the community to try and get some of my games that i have a lot of expansions for to the table more often um so i will report back as we go through the year i am also doing board games and i did a 22 by 10 challenge which sounds like an awful lot she's mad but in fact they're solo print and play, roll and write games, and a lot of them are very, very quick. So I think it's going to be okay, but I don't know yet. I'll report back. Yeah, so board games are also a challenge for me, and I'm not actually buying, well, I've bought a few of them, but I'm not printing any of them. I'm doing them all on my iPad, so it's kind of a, it's trying to give me board games without the actual buying big cardboard boxes that sit in my house for the rest of time part of the whole board game experience which is a problem for me the board games i'm going to be playing are android netrunner uh legendary marvel mansions of madness marvel champions star wars destiny under falling skies arkham horror third edition star wars x-wing star wars imperial assault and arkham horror the card game and i am seven games into my hundred games so far so i'm ahead of the curve um but yeah it's going well i'm enjoying it haven't played haven't played X-Wing in ages, so it was good to kind of get back on that horse and try out the new rules, which was cool. Are there horses in the Star Wars universe? Um, there are dogs. There are like those Tauntaun things. No, but there are literally dogs because the novelization of Star Wars A New Hope, Luke says that he misses his dog. True fact. Doesn't say space dog, just dog. Also, Earth is in the Star Wars universe because of the Star Tours ride, so Wikipedia has entries for both dogs and earth fact liz do you have any new year's resolutions i don't really do new year's resolutions i think i am less driven by being able to tick stuff off than you guys are so i don't generally do them i do always set myself like a goodreads number of books i would quite like to read and then quite often don't make it but i have done that again this year and set myself you know a target of 80 books how is that not ticking things off it is. She just thinks it isn't. It is. And I do record like the books. It's mostly to make me record the books I read so I can remember what I've read. But if I don't get to 80, I don't actually mind. Like I sort of treat it as that would be a nice number. Oh, yes. I should say that's also true of my New Year's resolutions that I don't beat myself up too much when I fail, which I inevitably do. 
for me it's the choice between having some sort of vague goal for the year or just spending the entire time aimlessly scrolling on facebook and i'd rather have a vague goal but i'm not going to like you know cry in a corner for a day if i don't meet the vague goal i just find it useful to have some structure yeah i just aimlessly scroll on facebook winning shall we do picks why not i have read a science fiction book it's um it's a 2021 science fiction book um so but it's not a novel i mean there will be more novels i'm sure um but this is synopticon a celebration of chinese science fiction translated and edited by Ting christine ni and you're going to need to go and get it from a website that I will definitely put in the show notes because I don't think it's generally distributed. It is a collection of, or a anthology, of um, 13 stories. And they have like little afterwards where, from the um, editor and translator where she's explained why she chose to put those ones in, which is also very interesting. Cause so, and I like the fact that they're afterwards because sometimes I read the story going, what? Oh, oh no, oh no, they're not going there. I mean, so it's extremely interesting because of all the cultural stuff. As science fiction, some of the stories are more interesting than others. Some of the stories are interesting in the way that they've chosen a science fictional trope to illustrate um, a facet of Chinese society, which I think is really, really good. Um, There's all sorts of different things in here. There are old stories, new stories. Um, forward-thinking stories, incredibly backwards-thinking stories. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's very that reads in a very um, heteronormative way compared to what you'd expect in modern science fiction now. So some of it really feels like it's reflecting some of the science fiction of my youth, and I really enjoyed it, and I would strongly recommend it. I read She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker-Chan, which is a 2021 fantasy novel. And it, it mainly is an interesting counterpoint to what you were just saying, Alison, because it is um, a, basically a retelling of the founding of the, the Ming dynasty, um, but a very genderqueer one. Um, so it, it's all, all said in, you know, the China of the kind of 14th century, and it follows... Um, basically a peasant daughter who is told that her fate is is to be nothing um and but when her brother dies uh whose fate was to be great she decides to essentially take over his identity um uh, she ten- and takes his name so Zhu Chongba then goes and joins joins a monastery ends up joining kind of the rise of uh the rebels against the Mongol emperor um all the all while disguised as her brother and then kind of the opposing figure in the novel is um, the general who commands the Mongol forces, um, Huiyang, who is uh, a eunuch. So essentially you have like the, the these two opposing forces who both have very different kind of uh, responses to their, their gender and how people see them and how people view them and treat them and how they personally feel about it. And just kind of it's a very nice kind of way of putting a different interpretation on this kind of known historical setting um it is fantasy but quite lightly fantasy i would say um the main thing is that the the main character can can see ghosts and there is this idea that you get a mandate from heaven to rule which is actually kind of manifested as a physical flame so that's the kind of fantasy elements other than that it's just kind of this big sort of historical epic of armies and battles and political machinations and assassinations and and conquering and trying to 
essentially take over the entire empire. But I think you have these two very interesting um, central characters. So I read that. I enjoyed that. It is the first one of a series, but I think it works fairly well as a standalone in that you get, you know, the first chunk of of the rise to power and, you you know, you can see what's going to happen. You can see that the next book will be about the next stage of the rise to power, but you, you, you're happy with it as a standalone. And it is also a 2021 book. And I think Shelley Parker-Chan is also eligible for the Astounding Award. You guys are reading your old science fiction from last year, but I'm here to do a pick from this year, like a modern person, because I watched the finale of The Expanse and I very much enjoyed it. Uh, it's done. It's finished uh, with a slight asterisk because I think they might be trying to make more, uh, but I'm not sure how that's going to go. Um, but yes, it wrapped up and I thought it was good. I thought they mostly stuck the landing. There are a few things that happen in season six, which kind of obliquely refer to things that are being set up for the later books. And I think they are going to try to get the later books made in some form or another, but I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. Um, but in general, I thought, despite that being a little bit of an annoying thing in the last season, uh, the last season was very good. And I really enjoyed myself and really enjoyed watching it all come to an end. And um, certainly one of the better endings I've seen in SF genre TV series in, well, really since I've been paying attention. Um, but yes, it kind of didn't set all fandom on fire immediately, which for a long running science fiction TV show is actually pretty good going. Looking at you, Game of Thrones. Looking at you, Lost. Looking at you, Battlestar Galactica. Uh, so yes, hurrah! Uh, didn't didn't screw it up. Well done, guys. Uh, I was going to say, looking at you, Mass Effect trilogy. Ending so bad, they had to patch it out. <laughs> that was the Octothorpe podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. I think that's it, really. We could do That Was The October Podcast and then Liz Can Eat. Sorry, it's only 6.45. I'm not going to get hangry till 7. Excellent. Let's doss about for 15 minutes. Really push our luck. No. Uh, I have just found on Shelley Parker-Chan's website little pronunciations of the character names. So I'm just going to check in case I, you have to drop in Ouyang. You probably do. It should be Ouyang. You probably can't drop that in. But anyway. I just thought I'd mention that as it's super neat because I was like, I do not know properly how to pronounce these names. And if and I had not known that was there, but it's a, just a neat thing at the bottom of the press kit. It's like, here is how you pronounce the five main characters. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.